Well, uh, as I was saying earlier, obviously, um, I'm not Patrick Thompson. Uh, my name is Michael Hill. And for those of you that I've not had the opportunity to meet or I've just met this morning, uh, our family moved here to New York City about six months ago. And uh, we've loved every bit of it. People ask us when we moved here, how is the transition? How are you handling this big city? And I told them, well, it's, it's actually smaller and slower than what I'm accustomed to. And they, their, their first question is, what do you mean? smaller and slower and I just said well you know we lived in Shanghai China for two years and there's 31 million people there and it's the size of Delaware so this little uh, fishing village here in uh, at the, the mouth of the Hudson River is uh, a nice slow pace for us but uh, we do love it here uh, New York City is an amazing place and uh, we consider it a privilege to be a part of New City Church and, and I'm thankful to be a part of the staff here um, a few weeks ago, Patrick let me know that uh, they were going to be out of town this morning and asked if, if I would be comfortable kicking this series off. And, uh, and I'm just thankful for that opportunity. I'm thankful for that privilege. Uh, you see up here on the screen behind me, this series is called The Storyteller, and it's talking about the parables of Jesus. And when you look in the Gospels, the first four books of what make up the New Testament of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the life and ministry of Jesus. You see what he did in three very focused years of his life. And throughout that time, he would often tell stories, these stories that are called parables. And parables are simply stories and analogies used to convey uh, a, spir a spiritual truth. Uh, these are, are things that, that we relate to. These are things that are in our everyday life. They're, they're a part of the world around us. And as these stories are told, it's something that we can relate to. And this is extremely important because there are spiritual truths, there are things that we see in Scripture that left to ourselves, we, we have no clue what's going on. It's deeper, it, it's, uh, it's infinite, it's, it's knowledge is above what we have. And so it's difficult for us to grasp some of the truths of the Bible, and, and really should we be surprised? If the God of the Bible is the God that he says that he is, then our little minds would never be able to fully grasp the truth of who he is. And so we have these parables that take everyday lessons, that take everyday stories, and then they bring it to a place where it connects us with the spiritual truths of the Bible. Jesus was the best at that. There's storytellers all throughout history, and some of them are great, some of them are terrible, um, I usually tend to go a little bit more towards the terrible direction when it comes to telling the stories. Uh, but there are those that tell phenomenal stories, but there is none better than Jesus. Jesus was the master of analogies. He was the master of figures of speech, and he was the master of language, and he was also the master of articulating truth. And, and when we see him telling a story in Scripture, when we see him telling these parables... It teaches us a few things. First of all, a parable teaches us about God. It reveals more of his nature, more of his character, more about who he is so that we can better understand who God is. But they also teach us about ourselves. As we look at the characters in these stories, we begin to examine ourselves. We begin, begin to be a little more introspective and, and see what is at the heart of our motivation why we do the things that we do. So when we look at these parables, they teach us about God and they teach us about ourselves. But they also teach us about our relationship with God and God's relationship with us. 
And so these parables are a great place to learn spiritual truths and how it relates to us in our everyday life. Uh, for those of you that know us, uh, we've got a little girl. Uh, she just turned six uh, a few months ago. Her name's Promise. Uh, we adopted her from China in uh, 2012. And uh, so she's been with us almost five years now. It'll be five years in October. And as an adopted orphan, uh, there are things that she struggles with. Um, it, it's not uncommon for us to just go to the next room in, in our small little apartment, and she begins to panic. Uh, it, it's not something we really relate to personally, uh, but as, as a small child, she was left on the side of a road, and uh, she was eventually found and, and put into a uh, foster care orphanage situation, and then... Uh, towards the end of that time, she was handed off to complete strangers to, to take care of her till we were able to get her. And so she really struggles with abandonment. Uh, there was one time in particular, I was out of town, and uh, we had, when we, the house we used to live in, we had a dog gate up because we had a dog, and um, Shannon went into another room, just went out uh, through a door, and Promise was in such a panic, she could barely walk, but she was able to climb over a dog gate just because she was that desperate to, to have somebody near. And the parable we're going to look at this morning is the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. And so if you've got your Bible or you've got your phone or your iPad or whatever way it is you choose to look at this text, look at Luke chapter 18, and we're going to see a story of this widow who is incredibly persistent, who is is continually coming to a judge because she needs help. She needs someone to come to her aid. And Jesus is telling us this story to, to give us some insight in our relationship with God. And what we find in this and what we're going to see here in just a moment is that our relationship with God is defined by our prayer life with Him. Our, our relationship with Him is, is defined by our prayer life with him. Um, my wife and I, we've been married for 10 years now. Imagine that, that we never talked. Imagine that, that we never communicated, that the only time that we ever looked at each other in the eyes and we ever said anything was the day of our wedding where we said, I do. And then after that, we never talked again. We lived in the same house, but we, we never communicated. How do you think our relationship would be? I mean, what do you think that would look like if... if I just did what I wanted. She did what she wanted. We're two very, very different people. I'm the, the just, hey, yeah, whatever happens is great. And she's the planner. I'm, I'm the one that's the extrovert talking to everybody. And she's the introvert that's happy to just snuggle up in a corner reading a book. Imagine if those two lives clashed together, yet we never communicated. Our, our marriage would not have lasted 10 years, right? That there has to be that communication for that relationship to grow. And so that's why we can make a statement, and we're going to see here in just a moment, that our relationship with God is defined by our prayer life, our communication with Him. If you would, look at Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. 18 verse 1, it's going to be on the screen as well. And it says this, And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, 
Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what this unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Would you pray with me before we go any further? Lord, we do thank you for this word. And, and I recognize that the truth contained in it is greater and vaster than anything my mind can, can comprehend. And so, Lord, I'm just asking that you would speak to us this morning. Give me the words to say. Guide and guard this time. We ask in your name. Amen. So here we see in, in this text is this story of this widow who continually comes to this judge, this unjust judge. And, and she needs help. She has no other, no other way to deal with the situation that's in front of her. And so she continues to come to him and just ask him, please help me, please help me, please help me. I need your help in this. And what's important to understand about what's going on here, we find a little hint in verse 8 where it says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so this is set in the last days of creation. This is is set sometime beyond where we are right now when, when Jesus will return once again to make everything perfect, to make to restore his creation, to, 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 to bring us at, who are his children to a place where there is no sadness, there is no sorrow, there is no tears. And so this is set in those last days. In fact, we see that in chapter 17. If you have time to read that some other time, it'll help set the scene for this a little bit more. But this is set in the last days. And the question is, in the last days, when things become difficult for us as Christians, as, as we see in some places in the world now already, when it's difficult for believers, when it's difficult for Christians, how will we endure? How will we be faithful? How will we continue to do what it is that we're called to do as Christians? And the answer is simple. We pray, pray, pray. Listen, it's already difficult for some believers in the world already. We, we know that there's injustices all around the world. We know that, that there is, is genocide, borderline genocide in countries around the world now. We know that, that there are millions of humans being improperly treated and trafficked. We know that there are all these injustices. But one of the things that we can see, if we really dig deep, if, if we dig deeper than what media will cover, if we dig deeper than what the left or the right is trying to push and promote, if we look really deep beyond all that, what we find is that some of the most mistreated people on the face of the planet are Christians. We, we find that there are believers that the moment that they decide to follow Jesus, that they are going to be cast out from their family. That there are some that are going to be beaten, that there are some that are going to be killed. Shannon and I had the opportunity of meeting someone that shared a lot of stories of working with Christians and in very, very difficult countries. And, and as he was telling some of these stories, he stopped at one point and through tears, he made this simple statement. There is nothing harder than leading someone to the Lord when you know seven days from now they'll be dead because they decided to follow Jesus. See, we don't really relate to that. We don't connect with that. But what I want to try to get you to see as we go into talking about chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 here in just a moment, 
is that when we do follow Christ, there will be trials. There will be persecution. In fact, it says in 2 Timothy that all who desire to follow Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so if we are going to try to be obedient to what the Bible says, we are not going to win popularity contests. So when we find ourselves in these difficult circumstances, what is the only answer? And the only answer is to pray. It's to pray. And we need to do it persistently as we see this widow doing. Look again at verses 2 through 5. It says, he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. He, she continued to come. She knew that this judge was her only hope. Uh, I don't know how many of you watch late night television. If you got your favorite Tonight Show um, host. Uh, maybe it's Jimmy Fallon, maybe it's Jimmy Kimmel, uh, maybe you're more of a, a Jay Leno or David Letterman guy. Uh, maybe some of you go even a little more old school, Johnny Carson, and you're like, okay, that's that's the godfather of late night uh, uh, talk show host, and uh, Johnny Carson is it. Uh, if you don't know who Johnny Carson is or you know very little about him, um, I'd like to welcome you to the 21st century, and I'm glad that you were able to come out from under your rock. And uh, join, no, I'm kidding. Man, you guys are, are hard this morning. Okay. <laughs> All right. Just next week, Patrick will be back. You're talking about persecution. I'm facing it right now. All right. Uh, so, so Johnny Carson, he hosted a total of 4,531 shows. Uh, it was from 72 to 92, uh, give or take a few years. And uh, Ed McMahon was his right-hand man. Ed McMahon was there for everything. And, and he was known for sitting down on the, the end of the couch. And uh, everything that, that Johnny was saying or everything that was going on in the show, Ed McMahon, you know, he had that little quip, something that he'd say real quick that would just sort of get the audience laughing, get them uh, engaged. There were moments where Johnny was doing something and, and he would get excited or he would get a little afraid of what was going on. And you'd see him run over to Ed McMahon and jump in his arms and... They just had this incredible relationship, but there was one thing that Ed McMahon was known best for, and that was his introduction of Johnny Carson. Each and every show, just before Johnny Carson would come out, he would say, here's Johnny, right? Anybody? No? Okay, all right. Some of you, good, all right. Some of you are like, what's a Johnny Carson? Well, that's what he was known for. And, and there was a guy that lived in New Jersey, a salesman of art supplies named John Searing. And John Searing's hero in life was Johnny Carson. And on his bucket list, there was one thing that he wanted to do. This was his dream, and he hoped to do it. And so he wrote a letter to Johnny Carson. He said, Dear Johnny, I'm your biggest fan, and, and I, I've got one thing I want to do in life, and that is just to open and say, Here's Johnny. That, that's all I want to do. And they received the letter and they responded back. They gave him an autographed 8 by 10 photo and said, thank you for watching us. We're glad that you're here. Um, and and, and we, we hope that uh, you enjoy your time seeing the show. We, we hope that uh, you continue to watch us years down the road. And uh, unfortunately, we won't be able to fill that request. Well, he, he didn't stop there. Over the next several years, he wrote over 800 more letters. Now, to 
John Searing's, um, the, to, to, I guess, defend him, uh, he, he never, it never escalated. He never made threats. He never stalked Johnny Carson. He never went overboard with this, but he just continued to write letters. This is what I want to do. Can I do this? Can I open? Can I open? And after 800 and some odd letters, he received a response and said, Dear John, today is your lucky day. You're coming on the Johnny Carson show. He was ecstatic. And so they, they, uh, he goes out to the show, and they get ready to, uh, to, to film the show. And, and he's sitting backstage, and all of a sudden, he hears those, those famous words. Ed McMahon saying, here's Johnny. And he was just so discouraged, so disappointed. But what he didn't know was happening is he was coming as a guest on the show. And so for six minutes, he was a guest sitting in the chair right next to Johnny Clark Carson having this conversation at which the conclusion of he got to go over to the microphone that Ed McMahon was always standing at and he got to say, here's Johnny. And as far as we know, he never wrote another letter after that day. <laughs> Here's the, the point of this story. You know, we got to have persistence. And, and that's what we find in this parable is a widow who is persistent. We're going to ask three questions. We're going to work through these three questions rather quickly. But there's three questions we need to ask as we look at parables. And so whether it's this week, next week, or the following week, these are three questions we want to address as we look at these parables. And the first one about this parable is what does it reveal about God? What does this parable tell us about God? What can we learn about his nature and about his character? What we find in this story is a judge who it says in verse 2, in a certain city there was a judge. He neither feared God nor respected man. So we see that this judge is an unrighteous judge, and he knows it. He rejects God. He rejects people. He has no respect for others. He only has respect for himself. And what we find is a contrast to this. In verse 6, it says, The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? Elect is a word used to describe those who belong to Jesus, those who are Christians. And it says, who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And so we see that there is this contrast between this unrighteous judge and who God the Father is. So we have an unrighteous judge who is concerned with himself, has no regard for God, has no regard for man. And then over here, we have God the Father who rules and reigns, who sits on his throne in heaven, and who looks down on us, who are his children, those of us, as the word uses here in scripture, the elect. And he says, I will bring justice speedily. We need to understand that God in heaven does not just create and then walk away. That God in heaven does not just save and then walk away. He does not leave us to blindly walk through life to figure this out on our own. Rather, he is a God who is ever present. And desires to be with us in these moments of trial and tribulation. The Bible says in Luke 12, verse 32. You can see it up there on the screen. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It says in Romans 8, verses 31 and 33. If God is for us, 
who is against us. We can say this, since God is for us. It's not a matter of, of if. Since God is for us, who is against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. One of the more famous verses in all of Scripture, John 3.16, tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We could also read this to say, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. He made the sacrifice for us. God's love is greater than anything we can imagine. When we think of love, I love my wife, I, I, I love my husband, I love my family, I love my job, I love cheeseburgers, whatever your idea of love is. When we think of love, it's almost always conditional. And we do not have the capacity in ourselves to love like God loves. Once we experience his love, then we begin to have that ability to love like him. But this love that we're talking about here, it, it's not familiar to us. God's love is unconditional. What that means is there is nothing you or I can do that's going to make God love us any less. It doesn't matter how bad we mess it up. His love is still perfect towards us. And at the same time, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how obedient you think you are. His love will not be greater because it is already perfect. How great is that? How much does that take the pressure off of us? No matter how good or bad we are, God's love is always perfect. And what's more incredible is we see time and time again that it doesn't just say that he is this God in heaven, but for those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that we have become Christians, he's our father. He will protect us. He will take care of us. He will meet our needs. He will allow us to walk through difficult situations so we can grow, but he is always right there with us. What an incredible God. And we see the, that very thing in this parable here is that the God of this story and the God of the Bible, he doesn't come slowly. He doesn't get to us when he has the chance. It says in verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He comes quickly. He's there. This parable reveals such great truth about God. The second question we need to ask is, what does this parable reveal about us? What does it reveal about us? Now, as we read this parable, we recognize quickly that, that God is telling us to relate to this widow. But what I want to challenge you, when you look at these parables, when you look at these stories, ask yourself, how do I relate to each of the characters in this story? In a couple of weeks, Jeremy will be telling the story of uh, the prodigal son, as we find it in Scripture. And in that, there are multiple characters. And I, I want to challenge you, when you hear a story like that about the prodigal son, put yourself in the shoes of each of those characters and ask yourself, what can I learn about me from that character? So the first thing I want to say is, let's look at this judge. It says that this judge in verse 2, 
neither feared God nor respected man. And I want to ask you, does your life reflect that in any way? If I'm completely honest, I have to say that there is multiple times every month, every week, even every day where I live my life not verbally saying I don't fear God or I don't respect man, but living in such a way that my actions communicate that. As though I'm the center of the universe, as though I'm the most important, as though it revolves around me. And so before we're quick to dismiss this judge as an unrighteous, hateful, self-centered man, I want to ask you, are there moments in your life where those ugly attributes rear their heads sometimes? And I think if we're all honest, we have to say, yeah, that's me sometimes too. And the reason that's important before we begin to look at the widow is it shows us all the more how much we need God in our life. How much we need Him working to transform and conform our hearts to His image. How, if we are completely honest, we cannot be the person in the Bible that He's called us to be without Him doing a great work within us. That it's absolutely impossible. And if we can recognize that, when we then look at this widow... Suddenly we relate to her even a little bit more, don't we? I mean, here's a widow. She's lost her husband. Who knows her state of life? Maybe she's a young widow. Maybe she's an old widow. But what we do know is that she has found herself in a situation where she has no other alternative. That her only hope is this unrighteous judge. I mean, think about this for a moment. Don't you think if there was somebody other than this unrighteous judge... If there was somebody that was loving, caring, compassionate, somebody else other than him that she could have gone to, that she would have gone to them. Of course she would have. But now all she's loved, left with is this man who hates men. This man who has no regard or care for anyone else. This man who even worse has no care or regard for God. And that's her only hope. But she is so desperate that she continues to go to him anyway. She pleads with him day after day. And the judge finally comes to a place at the end of verse 4 where he says, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. So he even acknowledges this. Verse 5, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She's, she's persistent. And, and what we find here is the need for persistence in our own lives. We need to be people that recognize God as our only hope and then be persistent in continually coming to Him. Whatever it is you're facing, I, I, I don't know what's on your shoulders right now. I, I don't know if you've had an awful week at your job or you just absolutely hate your job altogether. I don't know how tough life is for you right now with your finances or how strapped you feel or, or if you feel like you're sinking. Maybe you feel like you're in a bubble right now that even though you're in one of the most populous cities in the entire world, you feel like you're absolutely alone right now. Whatever it is that you're facing, whether it's, it's troubles in your family or troubles in your career or just troubles in your personal life, whatever it is, we need to recognize and identify with this widow that God is our only hope right now. But unlike her, where she's going to someone who 
is not caring and loving and compassionate, we have someone who loves us more than we could ever love ourselves. That we have someone who is there continually and always waiting for us to return to him. We must be persistent to come to the Lord. And so number three, the question is, how should we apply this parable to our life today? Look at verse one. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is a statement. We should always pray, not lose heart. We're going to break this down just a little bit before we leave. But we should be people that others look at and say, that's a praying man. That's a praying woman. I know that if I've got something awful going on in my life, I can go to them and they'll pray for me. Does anybody think that about you? Does anybody look at you and say, wow, he's a praying man. She's a praying woman. They're a praying family. Jesus makes very clear that we ought always to pray. In fact, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. <laughs> That'd be kind of funny, right? Can you imagine like walking around Times Square, everybody head bowed, eyes closed, just praying what that kind of mess that would be? Everybody driving their cars, eyes closed, praying. <laughs> that that would be that would be an awful place, right? We we don't want to we don't want to go there. Praying without ceasing doesn't mean that we're in this contemplative state, hands folded, head bowed, eyes closed, mumbling something to God over and over and over again as though we're chanting. See, prayer is communication with God. Communication has two channels: it has speaking and it has listening. And so when the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, when, when God says we ought always to pray, that means that we are continually lifting things to God, but we are also listening to what it is that he's showing us. We need to continue to draw near the Lord. Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life in your presence, or in your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In Psalm 55, 17, we see David praying morning, noon, and evening. And in Daniel 6, 10, we see Daniel praying three times a day. In the ministry of Jesus, we see him regularly going away into the wilderness and praying. And one time even going on a mountaintop to pray for the entire night. In fact, of the 37 instances in which Jesus refers to prayer, we also say in, in 33 of those times that this is something we should be doing together. He addresses it in the plural rather than the singular. In Acts, there are 32 occurrences of prayer, and almost every one of them is the church praying together. And so what we see is that there is this need for us to be praying individually, but also praying together. And so I ask you this question. For, for your own personal heart examination. Why, why do you do this church thing? Why do you do this God thing? Why do you do this Jesus thing? Was it just so that if you died, everything would be good, you'd be covered? Or is it because you recognize God is creator of all? And not only is he creator of all, we are his most prized of all creation. That, that he loved us so much that he gave his only son. 
that if we would put our faith and trust in Him, He would save us. He would forgive all of our sin. If that's what you believe, why would you not want to spend more time with Him? Why would you not want to talk to Him more often? We need to be individual people of prayer. We need to be a church of prayer. We, this fall, will start doing our prayer time once a month again. Is it convenient? No. 6 o'clock in the morning or 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, is that convenient? No, not in the middle of a work week. But is it important? Absolutely. Is it necessary? I would argue yes. Until we become people of prayer, we're just playing a Christian game. I would challenge you. The same challenge that I challenge myself with regularly. Become a person of prayer. Be like this widow, someone who is persistent in their prayers. Recognize that God will always answer our prayers. Sometimes it's a yes, sometimes it's a no, sometimes it's not right now. But he always answers our prayers. And also understand that prayer, while it sometimes moves the hand of God, its primary purpose, the way that he intends it, is to mold our hearts. To shape and mold us more into his image. I want to close with a time of prayer. Maybe you have not prayed in a long time. Other than asking God to bless your food before a meal. And maybe even in that, you haven't prayed in a long time. So I'm going to do something a little bit different with this closing. I'm just going to allow it to be silent for about 60 to 90 seconds. And I'm just going to give you the opportunity to talk to God, just the same way you pick up your cell phone and start talking to a friend. And whatever's on your heart, whatever it is that's weighing you down, whatever it is you're worried about, whatever it is that's going on in your life, or if everything is great right now, just talk to him. Tell him how you need his help or thank him for all the great things he's given you. Or maybe a little bit of both. But let's take 60 to 90 seconds to just talk to God. And then I'll close us in prayer.